Welcome to Cognitive Rampage Podcast. Hope you're taking care of you. Hope you're living your Cognitive Rampage. You have to believe in the power of you. Uncomfortable is where the change is. Should be live here. Welcome to Cognitive Rampage Podcast. Hope you're taking care of you. Hope you are living your Cognitive Rampage. It's a warm one out here in Florida over this weekend. Figured I'd sit by the fire right now. Since it's, you know, so warm outside. Definitely warm on the weekend. Hope your weekend is treating you well. Pulling up the live video, double checking my sound. Make sure we're looking good. Sounding good. Yeah, we are sounding good. We are off and recording live on Facebook. If you would subscribe on YouTube, we're on iTunes, Stitcher, the whole nine. Subscribe there if that's where you listen to podcasts or on Facebook. Like, follow the page. You'll get notified when I go live. On this episode of the podcast, I'm going to tell a opiate story at the end of this podcast. Um talks about both sides of the opiate issues rather than epidemic. Um, it's a it's a story that kind of argues both sides, right? I've talked a lot about the opiate epidemic crisis, use over prescribing, like, well, hard to get. I've done a lot on that, and it's been a while since I talked about it. And I read this article the other day, and I want to share it on the podcast. And I'll do that at the end of my Cognitive Rampage couple topics I'm going to talk about is chasing fulfillment and countering anxiety. So hope you'll stick around for that full story, if you will. The anxiety part, I'll share a little bit too of uh, my own story, um, somewhat, um, maybe not too much, but I'll certainly share enough. Probably, uh, well, you know me, I'm transparent on the podcast anyway, so um, I don't get too worried about it at all. So let's get into the first one, okay? Um, that may offend some of you on this, but um, you know me, I like to walk down both sides of the fence, you know, go from one end to the other, and just to give you thoughts to think about. A, well, a comment or a quote or something you hear, hear a lot, maybe you don't, maybe you think about it a lot, is the word fulfillment wishing to be fulfilled or hoping to be fulfilled and well perhaps chasing fulfillment i want to talk about chasing fulfillment versus contentment versus complacency and settling it's like chasing happiness to chase fulfillment it can be irrational happiness is a state of mind in a moment typically one that we choose with a perception at the moment when all the social constructs meet our beliefs meet that moment and we decide that we are happy in that moment if happiness is something you lean toward once i have once i get once i'm not then i will be happy um 
you're setting yourself up for failure, right? That happiness is merely a perception. And to think that we could walk around daily in our lives every second of the day constantly happy, well, that's irrational, right? Life doesn't work that way. There's things you can do to counteract bad days or certain thoughts, right, to bring it back to happiness. But face it, for the most part, we all feel the ups and downs, right? The waves of happiness and sadness, etc. We feel those things. So when you think about the idea of fulfillment, right, or are we chasing it? it? How is fulfillment different than complacent? How is, well, I am fulfilled now, so therefore what? I'm fulfilled, so I'm no longer desiring anything. I don't want anything. I'm fulfilled or I'm content. I'm content with my life, right? It depends on the perception that you which you view these words or definitions, right? How they affect you in your own life through what? Your beliefs, your beliefs of determination of those definitions. So for someone to say, I am fulfilled, is that any different than say, I am content? I'm content with where I am. Which one would you rather be, content or fulfilled? Fulfilled, possibly. I mean, they seem to mean the same thing with just a human-created altered definition, right? I Oh, I'm settling down. This has negative connotations. Or I'm settled. I'm content. Or complacent has this negative connotation, right? Oh, I'm complacent. I'm content. Perhaps I'm at peace. Maybe peace is something people are looking for, uh, to just remain in this state of peace constantly. I'm trying to point out the irrationalities of emotional moments, human emotions to which we may flow back and forth from, right? And the idea of chasing fulfillment is so, again, similar to chasing happiness, chasing this irrational state, unless you then determine yourself to be fulfilled, which is kind of my point. You determine yourself to be fulfilled, right? By what you check off on your boxes, right? I'll be fulfilled once I have this. I'll be fulfilled. No, I have everything. I have my my wife. I have my kids, my job. I am fulfilled. I don't thus desire for anything more, right? I may, someone may say that I have my kids, my family. I am fulfilled. Well, does this last? What happens when your kids leave home? What happens when they're gone? Empty nest syndrome, possibly? Are we no longer fulfilled? Where does the fulfillment come from? Does fulfillment come from what we obtain, what we have, the people in our lives? Or does it come from a inner decision? Do we set ourselves up for failure through expectations or things that we, well, think we should have to thus then be fulfilled? I'll be fulfilled once this happens. Many times we then get that or surround ourselves with those people, those things, and thus fulfillment still eludes us. Or maybe it's temporary. It lasts for a little bit. I'm then fulfilled. You have to then weigh that against the external environment, the who's, what's, why's, and things of the outside. Are the Is the outside fulfilling you or filling you up, or is fulfillment sought from the inside out? Or are they both just perceptions, right? Can we create that fulfillment anytime we choose?
I am fulfilled, but see, if we don't have the things or we're reaching to obtain a better credit score, a bigger house, or just a house or a thing, or to be able to say I'm debt-free, right? A lot of things that uh, that people struggle with, right, and, and think that I'll feel better once I am, once I have, once I have obtained, once I reach this benchmark, then I will be fulfilled, or maybe I am fulfilled because I have all these things currently, and maybe you still don't feel that, and you may look around and go, wow, I have everything that should fulfill a person. Notice the word should. I have everything that should fulfill a person, but yet I cannot find the happiness or the peace. My spirit is still not at rest. Be careful when you start talking and using words like fulfillment. I only bring up that comparison of the definitions between contentment, fulfillment, complacency, or settling even, right? When is the line to where we stop wanting more? When we no longer desire, right? When we're not driving for more knowledge to improve ourselves, to improve our families, our environment. When we're no longer striving to do that, is that just content and then we stop, right? So to say one is fulfilled, have you thus then cut off those things to then improve, or do you or are you constantly in this I can improve, I can get better every day, I, I learn every day, I'm growing every day, I'm just constantly will you find fulfillment? Does peace come when we are constantly struggling for the peace? You see this? This is what I'm pointing out is is the, the tyranny tyranny of words here that we may choose to use that causes our own depression, that causes our own anxiety. The worry, the wonderment the measurement of ourselves, allowing the external to be what fulfills us, or the once I get, once I have, once I get rid of, and then I will then be happy, fulfilled. Pick those words of substitution. Until then I'm growing, right? I hope you can see what I'm talking about, right? This becomes too subjective is my point. Based on the present moment and perception, this becomes too subjective. We leave ourselves vulnerable to our choice of perception in the given moment of our of our present experience. But if you've read my book, The Cognitive Rampage, you would also understand that we control that perception anytime we want to. It's the superhuman power that we have, the superheroes that we are, is having the ability to shape the present picture. How does one thus, though, then shape the present picture or perception that we choose to believe is thus calling ourselves fulfilled, but still yet still chasing the improvement? I'm fulfilled, but if we are fulfilled, then this, to me, sort of insinuates I'm no longer improving, or I'm fulfilled, I'm no longer desiring, I don't want anything else, I am happy with what I have, or are we simply content? Are we content with what I have, or I know I should be, right? This is that balancing act of multiple perceptions and social constructs driven by word meaning and our own beliefs about what it will take for us to be, pick it, happy, content, at peace, right? This is a battle I believe I think we all deal with. We all deal with that. The moment of where we are fulfilled, the moment to which we have sought happiness and or are happy and or are at peace until what? Till something changes. I'm only arguing both sides. To be fulfilled, perhaps that is something we strive to be. 
but then do we miss the moment to be fulfilled or at peace in that moment right this is this this conundrum right of uh, sure it's a balance adam i can hear someone it's a balance between both you have to uh, balance too becomes subjective i would love to see the measurement the table the pie graph the something that shows me where my meters are supposed to be to let me know i have thus balanced happiness the pursuit of improvement and thus fulfillment at the same time where is the crossroads for this what is the measure of the balance again balance becomes another one of those subjective subjective words that we pull from our own beliefs to define something in the present but this too like i said is also your superpower right i could sit here or you could sit there and go i am fulfilled today or is it momentary to use a time frame could we simply say, I am fulfilled today. I have the things I love, the people that are around me. Uh, I have the best job. I have my freedom. Uh, all these things to then thus check off the box to show why we are fulfilled. Again, this becomes an outer fulfillment, an external environment to thus fill us up. To say fulfilled also may indirectly say that, the, that we were once empty. Did we always have the power? to determine ourselves to be happy, at peace, fulfilled, etc. This can drive you mad. This can drive you mad. When we begin to wake ourselves up to our own beliefs or of our own definitions of what these words mean, to what our lives mean, to what we are chasing, why we are chasing them. When we wake up to those things, this can also be scary as fuck. Because as you wake up to the ideas of, well, what does that mean? I, am I fulfilled today? What is the, I, 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 I fill in that blank, that definition. I thus create the fulfillment and the peace. I create to the sadness. Do you see? This is the superpower. This is that perception control. I am thus fulfilled because I have my my partner. I have the things that I want, etc. What happens when the partner goes? If the if the home market crashes, right? You you're evicted. You lose the job. Are we are are we hinging everything on the external? Are you able to consider yourself fulfilled when the children leave the home? If your partner leaves you, where's that peace there? And if you open yourself up to that one on one side, the power to create ourselves to be fulfilled in the moment by simple perception construction. Are you able to believe yourself in that perception construction? Right. If it does not include all of those check boxes in order to be or can we create ourselves to be at peace and happy in just the moment by simply by simply challenging the beliefs that we have, the thoughts we are allowed to create, and then create our, our moment of fulfillment, our moment of happiness, our moment of peace. Or are all of these really just fleeting moments? Are we happy for a moment? Are we fulfilled for a moment? Fill in your time frame. Ten years, five years, one day, right? Do we? Is it simply registered on that time? Well, I am happy for the moment. I am fulfilled for the moment. I am content for the moment. I am at peace. This line that we create, the perceptions that we create, that is also thus, again, your power to create it in the moment, despite what may be happening. I know it's difficult, right? Oh, you're not living my life. You don't know what it's like not to have X, Y, Z, not to be here, not to be safe, not to be comfortable, not to be loved. Uh, th these are, again, we begin to make the checklist of why we cannot thus then define ourselves as fulfilled or happy 
again, based on the external. I just don't feel happy, one might tell themselves, right? But again, don't get me started on the feelings and the thoughts. We shape the feelings. We create the thought, right? But I get it. I've been there too in my life to where you can create that that thought. You can shape that present perception, but the feeling still exists, right? That's where I talk in my book. You have to go deeper into the beliefs. The beliefs, the belief excavation, right? Those concrete beliefs that have been put there and shaped by your experiences, um, sprinkled with social constructs and the environmental pressures of what life is or what a fulfilled life is to be or should be. But when you begin to open up the box, when you open up Pandora's box here of the subjective, of also the superpower of any situation I thus can create, I can make, I can shape despite of the external things or despite the checklist being there. I can shape myself to be sad. I can shape myself to be fulfilled. I can shape myself to be at peace. This constant struggle. When you open that box, you also begin to make yourself vulnerable. This is speaking from experience, by the way. I write constantly in my book about diving into the belief excavation, trying to wake those up that read my book about the ability, this superpower, this ability to be able to frame and open up your perceptions, your past, what you've been through, the experiences, and shape those to be something different, right? what you've been through could be your excuse and or your reason, right? Your excuse, you can't be happy. Your excuse, you can't find love. The, ex- the excuse, or it can be the reason that you are successful, the reason that you love other people, right? That is a mere personal perception definition that we choose to use it by, right? But when you go, go into opening this world, I'm telling you, become vulnerable because then finding the reality of what is can be very hard. It can raise your anxiety levels and peak them. So you need to know how to bring those back down, right? You may have some anxiety now just listening to this part as I cognitively rampage about the idea and the no difference between fulfillment, between peace, complacency, contentment, settling, pick the word, that we can shape that in the moment. We can lose the external environmental impacts or influences, that is, that then allow ourselves to define ourselves as fulfilled. Fulfillment comes from the inside, Adam, you might say. That's kind of what I'm saying, is that fulfillment comes from the inside. It comes from the structure of the mind, but also being um, allowing yourself to question even those checkboxes, those beliefs you have that have been forced on you through environmental experience, exposure, parental, uh, and otherwise, of what fulfillment means, what being happy is, what you must have, masturbation, what you must have in order to be those things, are we able to open ourselves up, are we able to be like water with our thoughts, to to quote Bruce Lee there, right? To be like water, yes, in life, but to go further, are we able to be like water with our thoughts that come from our past experiences, right? When reality, then reality can begin to slip. It really can begin to slip for you. You see, think of your life as on a pendulum, right? That's swinging back and forth. You find yourself swinging to the left side of the pendulum, way over here on the spectrum of finding depression, um, not sadness, anxiety, picket. You're on this side. 
And then you begin to wake yourself up to realize, wait a minute, I am creating these thoughts, even if you've been through the worst shit imaginable. Yes, th- there's time frames here, right? That we get over it, we get used to it, we, we change those pictures, we allow it to become our reason, not excuse, right? I'm, I'm not just saying it can be instant, it can be, but sometimes it's not, right? So as you're experiencing those, and then you begin to wake yourself up and unfold your reality as being merely your perception that you choose to believe, You've heard my truth roller coaster thing multiple times on this podcast, but just to give you brief for those new listeners that don't or haven't read my book yet, right? If you write a roller coaster, you tell me it's not scary. I write it, I say it's scary. Who's telling the truth, right? Truth comes from that perception, that experience of the personal perception of what that ride is. This is your life, right? So as you're one end of the pendulum feeling these sadness thoughts, you begin to feel powerful again, though, when you realize I can shape that. I can change that. I can change what I believe. It's hard as fuck. It's not about just reframing something, right? Oh, it's it's actually a good day, damn it. I've said it there. I've reframed it. No, those thoughts that you have are rooted deeply into your experiences that create the beliefs that you have about the world, others, and self, right? When we can go deeper into that and then open those up as going, holy shit, I'm choosing to believe because I experienced this is why I cannot. Because I've, I've experienced this, because I haven't had, this is why I feel this way. I'm choosing the thoughts that continue to shape the narrative of my life. Holy shit, when you wake up to this one day, it's hard because you're calling your own bullshit, really. It's not bullshit, right? But you're calling your own beliefs out to be to have plasticity, right? They can change, bend, and move, right? Just like our brain can. When you open that box up and holy shit, you, you realize how powerful you become, but then you swing all the way back to the other side and you're going, wait, but what is the reality here? What is the reality here now? What am I really chasing? What is this tale, this fulfillment tale that I'm chasing? You can open yourself up to hyper-awareness where you've come so far, personally speaking, where everything that you are experiencing, that your body is feeling, it's your biology, your brain, your physical, whatever, everything, it's just hyper-vigilance, right? That's when you have to learn to begin to look outward to counter the anxiety from looking inward. This is the pendulum back and forth to this side, right? You, it, I'm telling you, it can freak you out. It can save your ass. It can change your life. It can pull you out of some terrible, dark place of continued addiction, continued use, habitual, shitty behavior. It can pull you out of those thoughts. Right now in the book, I go deeper. It's not just about the belief excavation, thought changes, etc. You got to come with all the sciences, behavioralism, biology, etc. But just get the book. Read that. It's a, it's a full spectrum of change. I'm talking about one-fifth of the change here. And, that's, and as it's pulling you back, right, we have looked inward so much. That you become hypersensitive, hyper-awareness, very similar to hypervigilance. Hypervigilance is what people experience that have come home from war, post-traumatic stress disorder, that have lived in abusive home, right? Exposure to a traumatic environment for a very varying length, length of time. Hypervigilance, right? So hyper-awareness can do the same thing to you. As you become hyper-aware that the happiness you're choosing to create is merely that you chose to create it, that the fulfillment that you were chasing that you once thought you didn't have, you can choose to create in a moment when you are able to question those beliefs open. Well, then is the fulfillment then that thus I am creating, is that reality too? 
Oh my gosh, right? It can You can lose your mind. But in order to balance that back out is the tool I'm talking about today. It's the tool that I've been using lately on myself because when I became hyper aware, right, it pulled myself out of the dark place that I was in, put me all the way over on the other pendulum, and I felt, holy shit, I can control most of this. I can shape this, that, and the other. But then the foundation of a reality that I choose to believe, then what do I believe? Right. As you fulfill that, there's steps in the book that can show you how to fulfill that. But when you realize even those beliefs that you have shaped and created, although now are more positive for you, subjectively positive, right, are working out better for you. You still know that these two are merely perception that you have shaped what you've chosen to believe. And you can find yourself on some mental shaky ground, let me tell you. And even though you are aware of the social constructs that may have been the influence to you, right, it can still affect you because you have been exposed to those environmental influences, those social constructs that tell you what you must have to be happy or what you must feel if this happens, right? Uh, loss of a marriage, right? Loss of a job, uh, any of these other things. Even though you may be aware that these are mere social constructs that really only define us or affect us if we allow them to, I'm aware of these perceptions, you understand the truth versus reality, that you shape it, da-da-da, but just having mere exposure to those, the enforcement, the reinforcement from your parental units, the reinforcement from the environment that you live in, mixed with the beliefs that you have, the perpetual behavior that you have, those around you that are living a certain way, this still infects you this still will affect you just even if you're aware of those things right so to balance yourself back out to pull yourself out of the hyper awareness to which i'm telling you can be difficult to find joy as much as then as much as it is uh difficult for things like pain sadness and depression to affect you to find the happiness side to find the joyful side the fulfilled side it can be also hard to find those because, well, you understand the reality is what you shape. So as you move away from those maladaptive feelings, those bad feelings, right, that's pulling you out of that hole, it can be very difficult then once again to find the fulfillment because finding the reality of the beliefs to then base those on while still influenced by the constructs around you from your environment, all the ones I've listed previous, it's hard to then thus find your footing again. You need to get the fuck out of your own head. The counteraction for that anxiety is to begin to look outward to counter the anxiety. Too much looking inward, too much awareness, too much hypersensitivity. Looking outward towards others, a project, making it better for others rather than for yourself. Right? Simplistically, distraction from yourself until you level out once again, till you bring it back the other way. There are a lot of tools out there to help people with anxiety. I'm talking about anxiety specifically because anxiety has a lot to do with the shoulds in our lives, the what could happen in our lives. I could get sick. I could have this diagnosis. I could die tomorrow. He or she could leave me. My kids are leaving the house soon. The job may fire me. What if I don't try this idea? Right? You have to pull that back. Look outwards. If you once you can look inwards to save yourself from despair and things that you are feeling. 
depression, anxiety, addiction, habitual maladaptive behaviors. You can pull yourself out of that by realizing you are creating those behaviors. You can open yourself up to that, but you then become vulnerable to hypersensitivity. And then you have to look out of yourself. Look toward others. Helping others is a serious tool for getting out of anxiety. Finding projects outside of yourself. Even if it's helping somebody with their business, right? Not just some project that you're working on, because again, this is your project working inwardly rather than working outwardly. Work inwardly to bring yourself out of despair, bad behaviors, things like that, along with the other four things that are necessary to change your life. I mentioned those earlier. Read the book, I promise you. It's a lot bigger picture than just simply beliefs, reconstructions, behavioral, it's environmental, it's biological, right? It's neuro- neurological, right? As you begin to pull yourself out of that, you can, not saying you will, but you can face serious, severe anxiety because your footing is no longer there, right? You can lose your footing of what that reality is. And to counteract that oversensitivity, that over-awareness, is to reel it back in and look outside of yourself. Your boy went off on a little cognitive rampage there. Been wanting to cover those two topics for a little bit just to talk about and give you something to think about, right? I mean, it's as if you don't have enough, right, to think <laughs> to think about currently uh, in what you're experiencing in your life. You know, I, I say it because it's both a superpower, but when we then use that superpower, we too then become vulnerable to other things on the other side. And, well, it's about using every tool that we have, but being aware of, well, the possibilities of what may or may not happen at the same time. Walking into the next part of this cognitive rampage uh, is, well, the opiate story that I promised you that I would share um, I think, again, I think the story covers, well, both sides of the argument. I think it covers both sides of the argument um, because, in, in, okay, I'll preface, right? In, in case when you hear about the opiate epidemic, which certainly exists, overprescribing, which certainly exists, um, in doing so, a lot of the lockdown on the opiates had, have made it difficult for patients that are in severe pain where, where these drugs can seriously, seriously help you. But then it, well... It brings back the other side of what I've talked about, what almost the purpose of this podcast began as, is talking about how much or how little support people actually get in trying to stop taking opioids, right? So uh, this is from the Wall Street Journal, okay? That's the article that's written, or an essay that's been written here. Uh, The title of this article is uh, The Perilous Blessings of Opioids. An injured, an injured bio uh, biochemical scientist learned firsthand. That's a, a, a biochemical scientist, somebody that's deep into it, would understand the interactions here, right? Learned firsthand how desperately patients with severe pain need the relief of powerful drugs and how little support they get to stop taking them. This is by Travis Ryder. Uh, came out June 14th, 2019. On a beautiful Memorial Day weekend four years ago, I left my home in Germtown. Uh, in Germtown. There we go, lost my place there. Sorry. I left my home in Germtown uh, on one of my rare motorcycle trips, but I did not get very far. A few blocks from a few blocks from the townhouse where I lived with my partner and our baby girl, a young man drove his large white van directly into the side of my bike. My left foot was crushed and I was tossed to the ground. That day radically changed my life and not just because of the injure, injury itself. 
As a biochemist at John Hopkins University, part of my job is to think about the moral quandaries raised by the practice of medicine. Unexpectedly, becoming a trauma patient can be a particularly good way to uncover such issues. My own experience exposed a pair of linked challenges for patients like me and for our healthcare system. How to alleviate severe debilitating pain while making sure that lives aren't destroyed by the opioids that remain, for now at least, an irreplaceable remedy. I had five surgeries over the course of a month and three di- at three different hospitals. There, they gave me intravenous morphine, fentanyl, hydromorphone, and they sent me home with powerful oxycodone pills. The drugs were a godsend for getting through my ordeal, but I soon faced the results of being on high and escalating dosages for too long. I had I had formed a profound dependence. When my orthopedic trauma surgeon finally told me, two months after the accident, it was time for me to get off the meds, I was caught completely off guard. That's when my trip through hell really began. Following the, spec- the spectacularly bad advice of, of the plastic surgeon who prescribed my pills, I set out to wean myself from the medication over a course of four weeks. That is far too aggressive a taper. I learned, I later learned, that a standard recommendation is to reduce the dosage by no more than 10% a week and to pause or slow the tapering as needed. This is called titrating. If a practitioner is not titrating you eventually off a medication, if they are simply giving you a medication, your first question would be, all right, doc, um, when is the time frame? Is this taken for life, right? Or when do we begin to titrate or taper off this medication? If they're like, I don't know, when we get to it, I'd probably find you another doc. Um, They should have something in your treatment plan already as when you need to begin or may begin to start to taper off of this. But that information wasn't and isn't common knowledge among prescribers. Perhaps the greatest challenge about opioids today is to resist the urge to be simplistic or reactionary. The aggressive schedule launched me into withdrawal, and I learned I learned firsthand what the what the absence of opioids can do to someone whose brain has become accustomed to them. Those symptoms include increased sensitivity to the very pain that the opioids counteract, as well as extreme flu-like symptoms, insomnia, and crippling depression. I came to understand why people sometimes go back to the, da- the, to the deadly dangerous drugs, because their alternative is such a profound suffering that it makes you want to die. I live that lesson every moment every day for four weeks, but I was incredibly fortunate. With the help of my family, I made it through the intense withdrawals and escaped the chemical hooks of the medication. But no one in the healthcare system helped me through the weaning process. None of my prescribers, none of the pain management doctors we consulted, nor any of the addiction medicine specialists we called. They all seemed to regard tapering as someone else's job. Even though a patient on high enough doses of opioids for long enough will become physically dependent. This all might make it sound like opiates are too dangerous to be permitted. Combine my experience with the more than 40,000 overdose deaths that involved an opioid in 2017, and we might recoil from the drugs. But the peril is only half the story. Because those weeks in the hospital and at home, nursing my mangled foot, the the anesthetic effects of the opioids were all that made my life worth living. Unmedicated pain was simply unbearable. 
Opioids are not only dangerous, they also can be powerfully effective. Perhaps the greatest challenge about them today is to resist the urge to be simplistic or reactionary. America's current crisis of overuse has led, has led some prescribers to avoid the drugs completely, and it has led politicians to occasionally consider ham-fisted policy solutions like limiting the length or dosages of, prescribed regard, of, pres, of prescriptions regardless of any individual patient needs. But when a medication has both risk and benefits, what we what we need isn't one size fits all policy, but but new our policies, but nuance. How do we get that? Though the picture is complicated, there are certainly some straightforward changes that that we could make that we could make. For starters, clinicians need to reduce clearly inappropriate prescriptions. This is a duh. But good luck. They are making money on the back end of this. We can simply say to stop writing less prescriptions. Doctors many times are painted to a, into a corner where they have to serve their patient, right? You have to treat someone. You know, uh, we uh, every well, I'm not, I'm not sure everyone knows, but people travel ER to ERs all over the state looking for those. They are certainly more difficult to get, but some doctors certainly write them with ease, with no problem. So, um, obviously, to reduce clearly inappropriate prescriptions, moderately acute pain that can be effectively treated with ibuprofen should not be should not be treated with opioids, and is often and has often happened in the past two decades for, say, routine pain from dental work or injury. This is huge. They tried to offer my daughter with a sprained ankle oxycodone, or hydrocodone, sorry. Not necessary. Not necessary. I mean, we're killing ants with shotguns here. I mean, not only are you doing the patient a disservice because then maybe in a short period of time they need something a little stronger, you're going to have to go all the way to the big guns just to have some sort of response, right? Overprescribing, this is what this means. Overprescribing for, for dental pain, certain things like that, and people popping them like Tic Tacs and not being paying attention. Most of the people, when I was treating people with addiction, were not, as you may imagine, they weren't people that were just strung out, you know, switching back and forth from heroin, back and forth um, on pain meds. Um, most of them were trauma victims. Most of them had been through some serious trauma. And the other half had simply been like this gentleman, where they went through a terrible accident, something happened to them uh, or a surgery and they weren't informed they were simply given these pills and not told to be careful or you will become addicted or we're going to have to taper off of this together right there is no as he's stating here there's not like the doctor is sitting with you i'm not saying some good doctors don't do that but many consider it not their job that's up to you right so over prescribing is a, a terrible issue no one told me initially to worry about dependence or addiction nor counsel me on what pain to expect. See, not even informed here. That's That was my point, is not even informed about the dependency or the addiction. You're not counseled on it. Pre-counseling itself has some good effects. Even if it only saves 5, 10, whatever percentage of people from full-on addiction, pre-counseling should be necessary, other than your doctor going, hey, you can get addicted to this, right? It's it's what do we do? What happens when it's this far? Hey, when we're going to have to get off of these, etc., right? They can change a lot of things about about your life, okay? When opiates are appropriate, as in the case of severely acute pain, we need much better evidence, evidence-based guidelines for dosages, and we need doctors to follow them. Physicians have been aggressively prescribing opioids for decades without any data for guidance. The Michigan Opioid Prescript 
Prescribing Engagement Network, or OPEN, is trying to rectify the situation, generating evidence and making recommendations regarding drugs and dosages for various surgeries. You turn around and hand somebody 90 oxycodones that are walking out the door for a sprained ankle or a, a hurt back. This isn't a treatment plan here. Yes, you, you have to serve the patient, right, and treat them and help them with their pain, but prescribing 25, 30, 60, 90 oxycodones for some back pain rather than trying to suggest other ways to treat back pain, right, functional medicine, a whole bunch of other different ways, right? That's what I get upset about when it's the first line of, of reactive medicine uh, to most things, right? Um is trying uh, to generate evidence and making recommendations regarding drugs and dosages for the various surgeries. Uh, for instance, according to OPEN, guidelines while invasive, severely painful surgeries like a knee replacement could call for 50 tablets of 5 milligram oxycodone. A, thy a thyroid, a thyroid, a thyroidectomy, there we go, should only yield a prescription for five of those pills. The battle now is to get clinicians across the country to use these guidelines, even if it means radically changing their practice. Good luck. Good luck trying to get those to change their practice. It's what they do. A lot of doctors are very arrogant in what they decide to do. But I, I would agree that there needs to be some sort of research, evidence-based practice here of prescribing dosages, the amount of the amount of pills uh, and the dose size. Prescribing isn't the only relevant act when a patient is on opioid therapy. One of the most shocking features of my experience was that no one told me initially to worry about dependence or addiction, nor counseled me on what pain to expect or how to use the painkillers appropriately. Follow the prescription, follow what the bottle says. Well, when you're in that severe pain, sometimes following what the bottle says, says doesn't work, right? And again, many are not counseled. I, I could point out two or three stories of people that I know in my life that were not counseled, that were not told that they'd be addicted, would not, were not told that, hey, this is going to really change your life and impact it. You sparingly don't maybe not follow the bottle if you can bear it, right? Um, this kind of patient, patient education is crucial. For other medical interventions, we ask patients for their informed co consent, which is supposed to mean that they indicate their understanding and endorsement of the treatment plan. But none of my prescribers from three different hospitals thought that a similar level of understanding and consent was needed for the dangerous pain medications I was on. Doctors also must provide an exit strategy, right? Just like a business need an exit strategy, that's what I was talking about in the beginning. When do we plan to get off these? How long should it technically be, right? In many instances, this would only require a plan for the number of days of use and a modest taper. But the longer a patient is exposed, the more complex the strategy may be. For every patient on opioid therapy, there must be a clinician who sees long-term management and tapering as their jobs, right? Someone to help you taper off before you get to the addiction clinic, before you've become addicted, before your life is going to shit, before your partner's left you, before you lost your job, before you've almost died. We, don't, we, we, we can't leave this up to the practitioners within the hospitals. We can't leave this up to rehab to teach you how to get off of. The idea exactly is to get people ready and tapering off of this before needing to go to fucking rehab. 
it seems like common sense, doesn't it? For every patient on opioid, there, 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 there needs to be a long-term management care for sure. Um, we cannot allow medical professionals to play hot potato with the opioid patients, trying to toss them to someone else after the, after the timer goes off. Finally, physicians must compassionately engage with so-called legacy patients, those who thanks those who, thanks to aggressive prescribing and overprescribing, have been on opioids for years and even decades. Taking the drugs away can send them into debilitating withdrawal, and the correct course of action isn't clear. Again, before rehab. The overdose crisis is no excuse to be to be callous about their suffering. Agree. This is what I talked about. Some people need, I mean, it can be a, it's a miracle drug to help alleviate some people that are in some serious, severe pain. Something that I, that when I started this podcast five years ago, uh, I wasn't very, I, I didn't voice very much. I was just, I was hell bent on pointing out the terrible treatment facilities uh, on how people are not coming off, how we're barely giving them, giving them any type of real treatment in these rehabs anyway. I wish I had spoken about that more, especially when I was on Rogan. It would be nice if opioids were e- were either just evil, dark magic, or better, the simple solution to all of our pain problems. Then we would know what to do, but things are n- but they're neither of those things. A nuanced approach to opioids will be difficult. Extracting the benefits from them while avoiding the harms requires clinicians who know how to use them a system that rewards clinicians who engage in thoughtful, attentive pain therapy and a population of patients willing to do the hard work alongside alongside, slide, alongside the clinicians. This is true, too. The doctors, the overprescribing, big pharma can't take all the blame. As a patient, you have to be proactive in your own health, too. It's the same as if you're in rehab. Even though the treatment can be shitty, it can paint you into bad corners, you have to be active in your treatment as well. It takes effort on all parts here. All of this will take time and effort, but people are suffering, being badly medicated, and dying every day. Exactly. Inaction isn't an option. 100%. 100%. The essay is adapted from Dr. Ryder's new book, In Pain, uh, a, bioethis, a, a Bioethicist's Personal Struggle with Opioids, published by Harper, which, like the Wall Street Journal, is owned by News Corp. Appreciate you listening to that. Uh, I went off, certainly, um, and if I'm not careful, I <laughs> I certainly will uh, go off again, but there, there certainly needs to be change. There are those that suffer where these medications are necessary to get people through some very traumatic surgeries um, and to help people deal with some serious, serious pain along the way. But we need to fill in these holes where they're missing. There needs to be better treatment. We need to treat the person, not the symptoms, not just the the treatment itself, right? We have to get, we have to open this shit up. Um, simply calling it a crisis too and, and pointing this out, yes, points out some of the negative issues that he spoke to in that article uh, and in his book as well. It's, I mean, I've referenced hashtag chemical incarceration, uh, this begins to happen, uh, but from a treatment standpoint, there needs to be better treatment along the way, better treatment plans, more engaging doctors for sure, someone that can monitor with the patient along the way. But again, we're going to start to point to insurance companies. Who's going to pay for that becomes the first fucking thing that somebody may say when we're talking about saving people's fucking lives here and mothers and fathers, sons and daughters not becoming addicted simply because, you know, they, they well had a terrible trauma to their body or foot or back or something like that. Uh, it's about saving lives. So who fucking cares what it's going to cost? 
to get this system right. We can't allow insurance companies to continue to control how people are treated, both in mental health all the way around and especially addiction. Uh, too much. Fuck the insurance companies. Um, I, I think we should do away with them. It should be self-pay, pay-for-service, fee-for-service, um, and stop having to, to have to have insurance through the employer. should be an open market on various ways. Uh, I will go off on a political fucking rant if I'm not careful. Um, but certainly the treatments of which we offer in the middle before the addiction occurs, right, or to, to prevent it from occurring, and certainly after addiction has occurred, there needs to be some serious, serious changes in the treatment system for those that become addicted and enter into our corrupt, corrupt, shitty, terrible rehab systems because you can get locked in that for life and maybe convinced that your personal defects along the way that have caused it rather than the chemical addiction itself or perhaps the trauma uh, has been avoided by practitioners as well. I will go off on this cognitive rampage, y'all. I think I just did. Gave you a lot to think about there. Um, got a couple more topics to, uh, that I'll cover, some things to ponder on the next cognitive rampage. Uh, I have the next um, Adam Does the News You Missed lined up. That'll be episode two. That'll be coming up this week as well. Uh, and uh, we will be releasing this podcast here actually the same day. Uh, so it is Sunday, June 23rd. And this will go to iTunes same day. So we're going to release it today the minute this happens. Uh, as well as you can catch uh, the producer of this podcast, Patricia May. She will be on TV, people, uh, on NBC sister channel Afrotainment. Yep, Afrotainment, channel 184 on Comcast. Tune into her at 8.30. She is hosting their primetime show, Point of View, with... Uh, three other lovely ladies, so she got to guest host that that show. So you can tune in tonight, Sunday, Sunday, June twenty third. Watch her at eight thirty on that channel, and myself. Uh, I get the late spot. I don't get prime time. I'll be on The Lowdown, which is a comedy talk show hosted by the very funny James Yawn. I uh, do some comedy with him throughout a monologue on there. That'll be on at eleven thirty on the same channel as well tonight. First time I actually got introduced as a comedian, which was. Kind of cool to hear. I don't know if I dub myself that quite yet. I have a lot of work to put in and still a lot to do. But anyway, it'll be fun. You can tune into that. And, well, subscribe to us on YouTube. Find me on Instagram, Cognitive Rampage. On Twitter, Cognitive Rampage. Or AdamLowry.com on Twitter. Uh, website is AdamLowry.com or CognitiveRampage.com. You can go back and listen to all the podcasts. Subscribe on iTunes. We're certainly on iTunes, Stitcher, Podbean, all across. Huge shout-out to those that have been listening from day one for five years. Big hello and cognitive gratitude as well to all the new listeners and subscribers to the Cognitive Rampage. A lot to do, a lot going on, y'all. Um, I hope you all are taking care of you. I certainly hope you are living your Cognitive Rampage. We'll talk soon. Love you. Bye.